0: welcome to advance your art if you are interested in making money from your art using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers or if you're just plain stuck you've come to the right place now let's get started and have some fun with your host yuri cataldo
1: hello and welcome to another episode of advance your art with yuri cataldo If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck, you've come to the right place. Every week I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journeys. If you like this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Michael Ardeline, founder of Intro Limited and author of the brand new book, Art for Money. Michael, hello, welcome to the show. How are you today? All's well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Excellent. I am also excited about this too. Um, where are you located these days? I'm in Los Angeles. Excellent. And so, how has LA been? Let's say during this whole lockdown pandemic thing. It's
0: been a journey. Yeah. But you know, my my family is healthy. We're fortunate to be in LA. So there's. There's good weather and there's space to take walks and get out in nature, which is helpful. Uh, Our social life has been reduced to, um, you know, maybe a weekly cocktail with a very small circle of people, one or two at a time in our backyard, Uh, which to be honest, isn't isn't a bad way to live, I've discovered. (laughs) Um, And uh, and, and now it kind of feels like, the feeling in the air is that we're kind of coming back, hopefully soon, so.
1: Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, i've I've gotten similar. I've had similar conversations with people actually just today about that same thing. Of like, you know, there's this a spring hopefulness that seems to be in the air that wasn't there before. So let's that's true. Yeah. Let's uh, let's hope. So, for my listeners who are less familiar with you and your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Well,
0: I I have an executive recruiting firm, which is a small. We're a team of four. And we get to uh, connect really smart and intelligent, capable people with with really important jobs. And my career leading up to that is probably what the the British would call a dog's breakfast. It's <laughs> it's uh, it, it's not linear and it doesn't make much sense. Um, but I would say that. I've always kind of existed at this intersection of creative and business. And I've always felt like an an advocate for the creative person. And so, yeah, I mean, I started uh, with, I was a pro BMX writer. That's what brought me to California. So that was my career for 10 years. I got obsessed with product during all of that because I got all this free stuff and I got connected to cool brands and I wanted to be associated with those brands, Not, not just wear their stuff in the X games, but actually, Get behind the scenes and so i moved into a product merchandising career for another decade or so um, i consulted for a while and and i was a managing partner in a in a design studio i would say for the first few years of me having a job in the corporate world i always was freelancing on the side okay in some sort of capacity usually related to my previous career in dmx mm-hmm. and then um when i got to be this managing partner in a design studio i was um my job was to help these talented, creative people have a business. And so um, I learned some funny and difficult lessons during that time. And uh, it's kind of what inspired the book.
1: Yeah, awesome. Okay, so I want to unpack a few of those. Let's start with professional BMX writer. So tell me about that. What is it like? What? So first, what got you interested in becoming, like, of all the the, let's say the sports to focus on that you were like, BMX is my, my jam. And what was it like going pro as a, as a BMX writer?
0: The thing that got me interested in it was just something inherently in me from when I was a kid was I liked stuff that looked cool. Mm -hmm. I would, I was drawing Air Jordans. I was drawing football helmets, my favorite teams. my favorite color combinations. One day when I was like 10 and my, my, you know, I grew up in a rather boring area so one thing i do to entertain myself is just walk down to the drugstore and look at magazines Mm -hmm. and i saw this bmx magazine and i saw really cool looking chrome bikes with stickers on them and guys with long hair doing crazy moves and and the backdrop was all los angeles california and i said i I had no (laughs) realistic path to becoming that but i still i said to myself i'm gonna become that i'm gonna do that
1: yeah Excellent. So what was that path like? So I say this out of curiosity because I had a similar experience, uh, but in the skateboarding realm, not never going pro, but I was, you know, I'm from a small town in the Midwest and I would read skateboarding magazines and go, I want to go to, to you know, Southern SoCal and skateboard. And my dreams died very quickly on that side. So how did you take, make your dreams reality and go pro in this, this uh, focus? <clears throat>
0: well that's interesting so you know that as someone growing up in the midwest if you latch on to something like bmx or skateboarding you do you are not instantly a popular person and from a social perspective (laughs) no (laughs) not at all (laughs) um i had maybe five friends that i that i had accumulated in nearby neighboring cities and um we rode bikes we looked goofy we wore shin pads nobody knew what they thought they were they thought we were wearing black knee socks everywhere we went, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't care. We, we salvaged wood and built ramps, and as soon as one of us had a driver's license, we traveled around the Midwest, and there were little regional events and competitions, which were more like just social events. Yeah. Um, the glue holding it all together was this video magazine called Props, and every month or every two months, we'd wait for that to come in in the mail and just inspire us to keep doing what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And then at a point we would, my friends and I would start showing up in that video magazine and we thought we were famous and we were just loving life. And so for me, it was like, the moment I had my first paying sponsor, I was like, I've made it, I'm going to California. And that's (laughs) what
1: I did. (laughs) So so tell me about that moment. How did you get your first paying sponsor? How did they, like, how did, did they discover you? Did you contact them? What was that actually like?
0: It happened for me at a competition in Ohio where I was just having a really on day. You know, I wasn't afraid. There was, so back in this time, Mm -hmm. now if you watch the X Games or if you watch BMX happening, you will see like dirt jumps as a series of trails that you're kind of flowing through and you have to land perfectly on the previous one to do whatever you want to do on the next one. Back then, (laughs) open parking lot, (laughs) <laughs> toward a, a set of double double jumps, doubles, they called them, with like a 30-foot gap in between. No way to gauge your speed. You're just cranking as fast as you can up to this thing, hitting it and doing your trick in the air. And so the competition back then was like, you had five runs at this thing. And I just happened to have my tricks ready. And I was in the air for way longer than I'd ever experienced before. And I guess I just used my lack of experience and ignorance uh, to my advantage. And I ended up placing third or fourth or something something like that. And the people (laughs) ahead of me and behind me were famous pros that I really looked up to. And so some people noticed me there. I was in the props video magazine from that event. And then there was a Midwestern based bicycle company called DK. And they approached me and asked me if I wanted a free bike.
1: And we went from there. (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. Okay. (laughs) So let's fast forward then uh, because then you, so you transition from, for being a, a professional BMX then to Working in let's say merchandising and and, and the cl- clothing end of it, what was that transition like? What was the moment when you were, when you decided to end your your days as a, as a professional BMX rider and then go into the merchandising clothing company?
0: My, you could probably summarize my BMX career in two halves. The first half was like I was going to the X Games. I was I got invited to the X Games. I went to five of them yeah. in a row and annually every time just about every time i think i made the finals and then got last place in the finals and so (laughs) what i was realizing was i'm not a very competitive person
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um which i think is actually super super true of me to this day still rather differentiate than compete and i somehow convinced my sponsors at the time to let me stop going to contests and hey what if i can be like a skateboarder what if i can just be in videos and magazines and that's enough to earn a paycheck Yeah, and it was still hard work You had to stay relevant you know to keep progressing and you know to find a kid in your crew who's really good at shooting video or photos and make friends with the magazine editors and all that and, and get out there and do that but towards the end of that one of my sponsors who was gracious enough to allow me to have that lifestyle mm-hmm. was Giant Bicycle and uh, they, I, I just bugged them until they gave me a job as a product
1: manager and <laughs> they taught me the ropes. Wonderful, so that, I guess that, that moment where you transitioned over, did you have you know, regrets or things you were missing from the BMX world or, or were you ready to be done and go on to the next thing?
0: I was ready. I'm pretty good at just kind of putting stuff behind me if, if I'm ready to move on to another thing. And, and in my life at that time, I felt lucky I had traveled the world. Um, I'd been to Asia and Europe and yeah. 49 of the 50 states. And I, was, I still had all my functioning limbs and I hadn't broken too many bones and <laughs> no surgeries or anything. And I said, you know, all my friends around me were, I think, I think they were trying to figure out a way how to keep, keep on not having a job and keep on riding bikes for a living. And I, I was the opposite. I was like, I, th- I think it sounds glamorous and novel to have a job because I've never really had one.
1: Okay. I- <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer to that one so talk to me then about your your then a few transitions so you you went from giant bicycles to quicksilver to perry ellis these are all these amazing brands i remember used to like, like buying their t-shirts and buying other things especially quicksilver because they were you know socal brand and i wanted to wear their stuff thinking it was particularly cool uh but how how did you decide to make the transition to the next company in this merchandising realm that led you eventually to alternative apparel as the VP of merchandising?
0: The first one was after one year at Giant, I got an opportunity to move to Quicksilver, which was you know, apparel um, versus hard goods. And, and that was something I enjoyed at Giant, was like, it was all about bikes and parts, mm-hmm. but they also had this apparel and, and soft goods division um, Yeah, so I just had this realization that, hey, I kind of like, I'm way more attracted to clothes than I am bikes and parts and hard goods, and so uh, I had made a friend in my neighborhood of Venice who was a powerful person at Quicksilver, and he saw something in me and gave me this opportunity that I did not deserve, and my only option was to work really hard and not let him down, and when I really think about it, most of my career was like that. Somebody gave me an opportunity, and I, I felt like I had no choice but to quickly get up to speed, learn what I didn't know, and make that, whoever gave me that opportunity, make them look good.
1: Oh, awesome. So let's let's talk about your company right now. So uh, Intro, what, or Intro Limited, what made you want to start this company and, and what does your company focus on? A Couple of things, I mean, when I was in that
0: world, that Quicksilver, Perry Ellis alternative world, I was constantly being recruited. And then in a lot of circumstances, I was hiring recruiters. Um, to find me the right people and it wasn't always the most it wasn't necessarily a bad experience and I don't even think any of them were necessarily bad people it just wasn't always the most enjoyable or or accurate or thoughtful there wasn't a lot of follow-up wasn't very personal all those things and so I just I just thought about like well what if I by this time I had accumulated such a collection of novel friends, friend groups and social circles, plus, you know, people of influence and, and companies. And I just mm-hmm. thought like, man, my dream life would be if my clients were my friends and and the candidates were my peers. And so I, I just did whatever I could to build that because I think the hardest job a recruiter has is to, you know, if you can get the work, great. When you get the work, then you have to get candidates and candidates. I, you know, don't always like to pick up the phone for, for recruiters, but (laughs) they'll pick up the phone for a peer they'll pick up a phone for someone who's been in their shoes before, who's done that job before who just wants to make a connection. And
1: so that's what I do. Okay. Wonderful. And how long has your company been around so far? About a year now.
0: So I I founded something different before with a partner Mm -hmm. and a business partner who had a lot more experience in the space than I did. And, um, around the beginning of the pandemic, the the sort of, we were having two separate narratives, basically, um, where he kind of preferred to to retract and um, not take any risks as as there was uncertainty in the economic climate. Whereas, I I took a moment to think about it and I was like, yeah, the whole employment scenario of the world is a bit uncertain. And it does look like a lot of people are going to freeze hiring budgets and not need services like me yeah. but then my second thought was like i am and this is kind of like a message i give to freelancers too is like, you, you don't need everyone's business mm-hmm. i don't need every if, in fact if i had everyone's business i would not <laughs> i wouldn't be able to handle it so <laughs> i looked at who were my clients at the time i was like i was really fortunate i have clients who are either well-funded or in a really good, a really good place to to have e-commerce success if they had to close retail. Yeah, um, and just so just for a variety of different reasons, I had clients that um, were going to stick with me and we're going to need my services. And so yeah, long story short, we you know I went from having a it was me and a and a, a part time person to now we're a team of four, and uh, business has been very active I would say throughout the pandemic and especially now over the last two or three months.
1: Yeah, wonderful. So let's talk about your book then. So you just wrote a book that came out today, I believe, uh, Mm -hmm. Art for Money. So what's your book about and what made you want to write this book?
0: The thing that made me want to write it is I just just know way too many talented broke people. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think I was always trying to have great mentors and whatever, friends, coworkers, punch above my weight class. And, and every, the, the overwhelming kind of learning I was taking away from these people and the books I was reading and everything else was just your, your talent is a small portion of your success, a small indicator of your success. Maybe it's 20%, right? So if, if, if talent is 20% of your success, then the other 80% is behavior. And since I can't teach talent, I basically <laughs> wrote a book about behavior.
1: Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so so I know your book is a let's say a step-by-step guide of of you know advice for, for freelancers. So why particularly again did you focus on let's say the freelance market versus let's say an, another more uh, definitive artistic market? And what are some of the mistakes that you constantly see freelancers making over and over again that you help get corrected in this book?
0: Mm. Um, Freelancers, I I wanted to speak to because I just seem to be surrounded by a lot of them. It's a demographic that's growing as the world changes. Mm -hmm. And it's important. And secondly, because, you know, I place people in full time and freelance roles in my business and what my clients are always asking for, you know, if you're just filling a nine to five job, yeah. You don't need a, a specialized recruiter, and so I, I'm I'm generally filling very specific leadership roles. And when clients are filling those jobs, they want people who think like freelancers. Mm-hmm. We yeah. want people who are self-sufficient, who know how to manage up, who know how to communicate, um, who can advocate for themselves and others. And so I felt like, man, everyone um everyone who's around me could benefit from. From this book and so and the, the other reason i wrote it was just like honestly i had no plan for it i just yeah. i wrote it about two years ago to be honest i i updated it recently when i um, when the publisher uh, provided with me provided me with a great editor mm-hmm. and we kind of updated it a little bit and added to it and made it better but i just i wrote it because I, I had something in my system that i had to get out and just put it down and then after i got it down on paper life got really busy career got really busy and i had no plan for it but then um i got connected to holloway the publisher and they really specialize in this kind of topic of career advancement and we instantly hit it off and they instantly said yes to the book and so here we are Um, but to answer your questions i i kind of narrow down the the top two mistakes of freelancers are just these misconceptions the first one is like believing that you'll get paid on your merits Mm -hmm. um or or this belief that like life should be fair and i should get paid based on my talent. and like of course we know nobody gets paid solely based on their talent so everybody's mad and if you understand the game you can avoid getting mad and and avoid that frustration um and the second thing is a lot of freelancers tend to believe that this there's this equation of like talent plus popularity like i've got the talent yeah now i just need everybody to know about me Mm -hmm. and i think like i mentioned if everybody knew about you you would be you would hit, you'd be hit with a tidal wave of work that you could never complete. All you need, you just want, like Seth Godin talks about being famous to the family. Like you just need a handful. In some industries, you might only need three clients or six clients for a year. Um, and so if you, can, uh, if you can get a couple clients and do great work for them and they tell other people, you know, so I would just say, it's, it's kind of like think, think big, but act
1: small when you're getting started. Hmm, okay, that makes sense. I'm so I'm, I'm curious, since you, you know, have, have wrote this book a couple of years and then updated it, how the pandemic may have affected, like say parts of this book or if, if any, because obviously the pandemic hit a little over a year ago now and everything changed and everything kind of um, had to be put on, on hold, but also, you know, tweaked. So how has the pandemic, if anything affected some some elements of this book, or how are you looking at the freelance market now post pandemic?
0: The main thing is that freelancers are more in demand now. Um, Among a lot of my clients, there's this sort of belief that the more creative the role is, the more likely they are to want to get that person on a contract basis or explore some variety um, and avoid the commitment. Mm uh so that's one thing and then um i guess the other thing is now because of that demand there's like i talk about this a lot in, in negotiation there's <laughs> you're, you know let's say my my fee is, is five grand for a given job you know yeah. it's not five grand because i made up that number it's five grand because that's what other clients are already paying me for it mm-hmm. so it's a real number and and if they're not i need to spend my time and energy becoming worth five grand not trying to convince them to pay me five grand Mm. and so companies will pay five grand when they have to when they have to pay that amount to get what they want yeah so i think um negotiation skills i think are still important for freelancers but i think now i'm discovering firsthand that freelancers are in a better position because the facts are there uh the companies want what they have to provide.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good to know. So I'm I'm curious on that, you mentioned negotiations or just kind of other elements of, of defining what you're worth to a, a client. And for some people, that idea is terrifying. Like the idea of money, you know, I, obviously is that's the big uh, push of your book. How do you either work with, with freelancers or suggest it in the book of how they can get over the idea of, of fear of, Asking for money, or of it just fear in general, just to make sure that they get what they're what they are worth and what they should be paid properly for.
0: The way to get over that fear is to be speaking from a place of fact and instead of suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> how does that how does that go? it if if you're if a client asks for your rate and your response is anything less than a definitive specific number Mm -hmm. they can tell that you're actually just making a suggestion or if you're waiting for them (laughs) if you're waiting for them to put you know make the first move or throw out the budget before you quote you it means you don't know your price and so the most important thing is to know your price Mm -hmm. and so I just went ahead and put a formula in the book it's if you get the digital version you can click a link and a very simple spreadsheet comes up and you you put a couple things in there and your rate will, will be spit out. And I think when you're coming from a place where your rate is scientific mm-hmm. and it's a real number, it's a real fact, look, you can still discount work if you love the client or if you absolutely have to because you need the work or if the client doesn't mm-hmm. have the budget or whatever it might be, but you're, now you're, you're working backward from a real number. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's really important. So the formula basically is like, what's the most money you ever made in a year? Yeah. Obviously, you don't want to make less than that ever again, right? You always want to be growing. So you take that amount of money and you divide it by 2,080. That's how many business hours there are in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's your hourly rate. And that's not the hourly rate that you want to charge. But that's your starting point for what it costs you to do work. And you want to, you know, there's a formula for adding your overhead into that. And it gets a little more sophisticated. But basically, you you want to have a solid, clear idea of what it costs you to live and pay your bills at a certain level. And it's a real level, right? It's a level that you've experienced before because you're gonna build on your best year ever as you move into freelancing. Yeah. So that's the formula.
1: Okay, I, I like that one. What happens when the client starts pushing back? Is there, are there strategies to, I guess, Again, because it's all part of the negotiation. And sometimes they may push back just because of money. Other times, you know, who knows why. But let's say they start pushing back. Are there strategies you have to help people to stand their ground and, and to talk from a, a place of authority about why things cost the way they are? Because in my experience, sometimes um, when, when, pushing, when pushback starts happening, some people start second guessing themselves of whether or not they're actually worth that, or if they're like, well, maybe I can you know, do something else but um, how do you hold your ground and keep to keep the line of what you're worth?
0: I think the first thing is to welcome that conversation. You know, it's, it's, I'm, there's a line about that in the book. Like this, this is not the first price quote that this client has seen that has made them gasp. Uh, (laughs) And (laughs) this is not the first time you've experienced a client uh, telling you that their budget doesn't allow for, for your rate. And so you can decide, you can decide how, how bad do I want this job? You know, the, the the upper hand in any negotiation goes to the person who's ready to walk away. Mm. Um, And it kind of goes back to that $5,000 example. If if you're quoting a fee of $5,000, but really you would take 2000, you're kind (laughs) of (laughs) lying. So, you know, you can put out there that your fee is five thousand. If you really believe that's your calculated fee and that's your fee, but if you know that your um, if you know that your bottom line is something else, you can tell the client, "Look, uh, here here's the here's where I could meet you. Mm-hmm. Here's a price point where I can meet you." Or, or you could say, "Hey, let let me know what you're thinking for budget, and I'll tell you if it's even workable for me." Yeah. Um, and and tell them why. Like, hey, I I believe in your brand. I think that. I, I think you're doing something great. I think your product is amazing. I want to be involved. I know that a year from now, you'll be coming back to me with a bigger budget because you have a great idea. Yeah. Um, and it also helps to just show them like, this is my price. Here's how much I'm discounting. Put that on the invoice. So, you know, you've anchored your your real price, but your, you know, your discounted price is, is special for them and ask them to keep it confidential mm-hmm. and go from there.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. I love that. So Michael, with everything that you've done and experienced, what would you say has been the best advice that you were ever given?
0: Pessimists sound smart.
1: Optimists make money.
0: And I don't know if that's advice, maybe that's a quote. (laughs) Um, But I love that. Like uh, a buddy of mine who's a financial advisor is uh, kind of regurgitated that recently and reminded me of it i'm sure i'm sure he was passing it along from a wise person before him but the advice being like look it's not wrong to be negative many negative things are happening all around us they're true Mm -hmm. um but there's positive things as well so the negative people are not incorrect it's just you know we get to choose Uh, there's so much good and bad in the world we get to choose so we can let it overwhelm us and we can choose what we want to focus on and it's up to us
1: yeah Wonderful. I I I really like that. It's uh, yeah, you get to focus on what's you. That's great. So Michael, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to buy your book, follow your work, uh, potentially even um, you know employ your company, where are the best best places they can go for all of that?
0: My company is at introlimited.com, and um, I'm on Instagram. My my handle is easy on the extras which is uh which ties back to my obsession with minimalist uh design and uh also weirdly ties into the to the book and what i do mm-hmm. so those are the main two places you can look
1: me up okay wonderful and then the book available and amazon other retailers that the traditional roots
0: yeah holloway.com the publisher they have a really cool proprietary digital reader Okay. Um, that actually works really well in a browser. So if you want to buy the digital version, it's at Holloway.com slash art for money. And um, yeah, hard copies are available on Amazon.
1: Okay, wonderful. I will put the links to all those in the show notes so people can click right through. Uh, but again, thank you, Michael. This has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.